Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. We also today get to, I, I would say, resend out a missionary couple from our church, Seth and Nicole Stokes. Uh, we've already sent them on missionary journey number one, and they've become established there in Vanuatu and begun to disciple and begin to learn the language. And uh, soon we'll pick up the translation of the Bible into this language with the unreached people group of the Tiale people. And uh, today is their last Sunday with us before we send them back out on missionary journey number two. And we're going to take uh, just some time together as a church family, and we're going to pray over them, lay our hands on them, and just ask the Lord to bless them as they go out. So I want to invite Seth and Nicole to come on up here. I also want to invite a few in the room. Uh, if you are a pastor or a deacon in the room, if you would come up here uh, with me as well, and let's lay our hands on these guys. I know not all of them are in this service. Some are in the other service. Uh, guys in the back, I'm going to use this blue mic, if that's okay with you. And we're going to take some time. Seth and Nicole, you come right here, front and center. You got your tissue already. Look at that. Uh, <clears throat> they're going to come up and, uh, and pray. I will also, I think we have enough, right? So we are going to personally lay our hands on them. But I want you all to join with me. And I want to try something new. We've never done this before as a church family. But uh, the Bible talks about laying hands on people, especially when you look at, uh, in Acts, the first missionary couple, if you will. They weren't a couple in a romantic sense, but they were a team, Paul and Barnabas, that went out. And the church leaders got around. They laid their hands on them. They prayed over them. They, they said, Lord, would you help them? We're sending them with your spirit. Uh, but there's also the church body that needs to be a part. Uh, the Bible talks about uh, praying, lifting up holy hands. And I want you to join us this morning. I want you to pray with us. And if you don't mind, would you stand first of all? Would you stand? I think it'll help you engage. And do me a favor, okay? Let's try this. You're going to think, oh, we've gone charismatic, but it's fine. You can criticize me. Uh, lift up your right hand. Everyone say, lift up your right hand, okay? Now, when we lay our hands on them, I want you to air lift your hands on them, okay? I want you just to put your hand out, and I want you to pray for them. And we're, we're going to have the privilege to touch them. There's too many of us. We can't all put our hands on them, but we can. Uh, put our hands on them. If your hand gets tired or something or, you know, you need to sit down, go ahead. Uh, but we're going to pray. I'm going to ask uh, Alan Keener if you would pray just for physical and spiritual protection for this couple. Uh, Pastor Dom, I'm going to ask you to pray just for spiritual fruit and that the Lord would bless them and give them fruit to their account. And then I'm going to ask Les Goldstrom just to pray for wisdom and discernment for them. And I want you to join with us as we pray. So Alan, here's the mic and you pray for us first. Guys, come on in here, let's lay our hands on. Father, we thank you for this opportunity and the faithfulness of Seth and Nicole and their willingness to go forth uh, to Vanuatu. And we pray that I know in the past they've had physical issues and even while they were here, uh, I know Seth had multiple issues. And we pray that your hand of comfort and strength and your protection would be upon them pray that you would give them physical strength to be able to endure the work that you have called them to, and I pray that you would give them uh, just your protection of hand upon them as they travel and safety and 
just uh, every day that you would just be present with them, that they might feel your presence, that they might be able to say that the Lord is with me and, and know that uh, you're giving them the strength to accomplish the work that you've called them to. And Father, we'll give you the thanks and the praise. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Father, we thank you so much for Seth and Nicole. Lord, we're so thankful for their surrender to your calling in their life. And Lord, we, we know that there's been a season where they've been there already, but they're about to go back. And Lord, we just pray that your hand of protection would be upon them. But Lord, also your hand of provision would go with them. Lord, uh, you have directed their steps to this place. And Lord, we pray that you would even now uh, prepare the way before them as they get there, uh, Lord, they'll be able to uh, reestablish themselves quickly in their home and with the people uh, and with the work that they're doing there for the gospel and that you would bless it. Lord, you told us that uh, the, the harvest is, uh, the fields are ready unto harvest, but the laborers are few and here are two laborers ready to go, Lord. We ask that you would give them your favor while they're there, uh, Lord, that uh, you would be with their spirit that you would encourage them and strengthen them. Lord, give them wisdom. Help them to, to know the people and know how to effectively minister the gospel to them. Lord, raise up some faithful ones among them that will labor in the work with them. Lord, so that you could be glorified and, Lord, souls can be saved, lives can be changed. And Lord, we'll give you the glory for what you will do. We ask for these things in Jesus' precious name. testimony and the willingness of the Stokes to commit their, commit their lives to you at a young age, Lord, and to go on a mission field, and it's not an easy decision, and to go far away from home, and to do that, Lord, thank you for the example that they set to all of us, um, and to do it as an older couple after they retired and decided to do something else with their life, which there's nothing wrong with, but they did it as a young couple and took that step out in faith and relied upon you. That's just a tremendous example for us as we each try to carve out our own paths in life and we try to figure out where we need to be and what you would have us to do, Lord, that put our faith and trust in you and you will guide and direct in those steps. Sometimes, or actually all the time, life, life's path doesn't always take the path that we want. And sometimes curves are thrown in there and unexpected turns and frustrations and aggravations and where it can be difficult at times. And we've seen Seth and Nicole go through that, Lord, and see how you've blessed and undertaken and, and, and just provided for them. I pray now for wisdom and judgment as they go forth. Uh, we're still dedicated to you and all those uh, prior paths that had the different twists and turns didn't throw them off of their game, Lord. They still kept their eyes focused on you, Lord. So I pray now, especially as they as they embark on this uh, journey again, that you just might grant them special wisdom, special guidance, uh, special understanding. There will be additional twists and turns in life's journey, and they're going to need that wisdom from you. We can prepare and do our best and lay out plans and organize and have everything lined up just perfect. And when those little nuances turn up in life or the different changes that we didn't expect or the difficulties, Lord, that's when your wisdom and your judgment comes into play, Lord. And I just pray that um, Seth and Nicole will continue to rely upon you and that they will grant, that you will grant them that wisdom and that judgment that they need in those moments that they may make the right decision through it all that you might receive the honor and the glory we thank you in advance for what you'll do in their lives and again thank you for them and their testimony and um, just the example they set and their dedication to you in your name
king. Amen. Amen. If you love this couple, would you join me and just send, and just give them a round of applause just to express our love to them? seated as a church family they're going to join you um, <clears throat> when you walked in today you should have received one of these little cards for Seth and Nicole and we gave them to you for a reason if you didn't get one they're at the welcome desk but it has their email on there it also has their blog on there uh, you can also connect with them uh, via Facebook uh, but we want you to stay up to date with them regularly we have over a hundred missionaries that we support through prayer and finances every month here at the church where we will give them $100 a month, $200 a month, $400 a month, whatever it is. And uh, there's, there's no one missionary couple that we want to invest in or keep a greater tabs on than this missionary couple because they are part of our family. Our other missionaries are part of our missionary family, but they're not out of our church, whereas this couple is. And, uh, and we really want to do a good job of loving them and helping them and supporting them. So I hope that you'll join me in, in that journey and that you'll, you'll put this card to good use in the years and in the months to come. Seth and Nicole, we want you to know that we have your back as you get there and you uh, find out you have a house need or you have a car need or whatever it is. Uh, we're here. You let us know and we have your back. All right, First John chapter number three is where we're at. We are continuing the study of First John. We're more than halfway through at this point. And just working through this verse by verse by verse, the big premise is that God wants you, if you're a Christian, to have confidence and to have boldness and to have assurance of your salvation. He does not want you to go through life on shaky ground or to be spiritually unstable. He wants you to have confidence. And we're going to see this theme that has popped up in John's epistle uh, already. In chapter 2 we saw it, in chapter 3 we'll see it, in chapter 4 we'll see it again in a profound way. And next week we'll see how this theme of love will really create assurance and confidence for us and how those two connect in really profound and deep ways. But I want us just to understand his teaching. I'm calling this five levels of life, and we can uh, look at these levels of life together. So 1 John chapter 3, look at verse number 11. This is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Or why did he kill him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. Ye know that ye have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. And ye know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has his world's good, and sees his brother have need, and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth." If you look at this passage and you begin to see the different levels of life that John gives, the lowest level that he gives is that of murdering. And he, 
gives us this overarching message that we should love each other, but he contrasts that, and his contrast actually is not at first with indifference or apathy or something like that. His contrast is that of murdering, and he deploys Cain and Abel as an example, and he says that Cain's works were unrighteous and Abel's works were righteous, and he slew his brother because of that. Now, anthropologists have long acknowledged what some have called the law of the nations, This examines the law of the nations, looks at cultures from all time periods and and all over the world and tries to see what points of commonality have cultures always shared. And generally, you will have a handful of laws that pop up that cultures everywhere share in. One of those commonalities, and a major one I might add, is that of do not murder. That culture to culture to culture to culture, all through time, you find this love of life in this admonition or law even that you should not murder. Life is valuable. Life is sacred. This, there's this internal sense of oughtness in us that we, out of the common wellspring of our humanity, all just kind of intuitively know we should not murder each other. This is not a good idea. Now, the Bible from cover to cover abhors murder. You would find that there's a theological uh, foundation for this, Namely, that there's a creator God, and that creator God makes man and makes man special. He makes man in his image. He makes us as humans image bearers. And this puts us apart from the flora, the fauna, the animal kingdom. This makes us different. We, because we are stamped with his image, have this this desire to know. We have this desire to love. We have this desire to last and we wonder about eternity. We have this desire to create and to make all things that are the, the image of God in us that is not in the rest of creation. And because of this, mankind is viewed through the lens of Christianity as altogether different and separate from and elevated above the rest of the created order. And because mankind is elevated above the created order, there are special admonitions that are given for us to treat each other well, for us to love each other, that's the positive, but for us to not hurt each other or murder each other, that's the negative. That's a, a very biblical Christian concept, that we care for each other, that murder is wrong. Now, you're probably thinking, great, you know, I showed up to church today for you to tell me murder was wrong, like, Okay, I learned nothing. Well, don't breeze past it, okay? Because verse number 15 says that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, that's a statement. Does that mean that if someone has ever committed murder, and we'll just ignore first degree or second degree or manslaughter, or we'll just ignore the degrees, but murder in any way, shape, or form, that they cannot be saved, that eternal life cannot be in them? I have not had this happen at this church, but where I ministered previously in California, um, one day a, a man showed up to church wanting to know about God, wanting to learn, eventually uh, became a Christian and, and was saved, but he made it clear to the pastoral team uh, at the beginning, hey, I want to be up front. I served 20 years in prison for murder in the second degree. I was drinking and things got out of hand and this altercation took place and one thing led to another and I killed a man. And I served 20 years for that. Am I welcome here? I just want you to know this. Now, should we tell him? No. Uh, You can't be saved. No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's hopeless for you. Adios, bucko. Should we say that? 
if, if you go outside of murder, what about abortion? Now, without getting into is abortion murder or not and trying to debate all of that, I'm just going to simply say that our church believes and teaches and has at length in many sermons that abortion is in fact murder. That if murder is defined as the purposeful and premeditated act of willfully destroying another human living life, if, if that's the definition, and that is the definition of murder, then abortion would fit that criteria. So what about uh, someone who's chosen abortion? What about someone who's complicit in that? Maybe the dad or a friend encouraging someone to have an abortion. What about a doctor who has performed an abortion? Are we saying that that person cannot be saved, period? What about suicide? Many have long looked at suicide as self-murder. Some of you grew up with a Roman Catholic uh, background, and not all Catholic churches teach this, but most Catholic churches teach that if you commit suicide, then you have no hope. The bars of heaven are, are, or the doors of heaven are barred from entry, and you cannot get in. Because if you were to kill someone else who is made in the image of God, you would be taking God's picture, ripping it up, and tearing up God's picture. If you kill yourself and you're made in the image of God, then you're taking God's picture, you're ripping it up, and you're destroying God's picture. It's self-murder. So if you just stop and say, okay, no murderer has eternal life, there's a lot of implications for this. There's a lot of ramifications for this. There's a lot of connection points because most of you know someone or you are someone who, hey, I encourage someone to have an abortion or I had an abortion or someone in my family committed suicide. Like, there's a lot of ramifications here. What does this mean? Well, I hate to leave you in suspense, but I have to for a moment because John attaches not just murder, but he attaches hate in a similar way to verse 15 and not having eternal life. Here's what he says in verse 13. He says, marvel not, brethren, if the world hates you. So first of all, hatred will come at you from the world. They hated Jesus and plotted his murder. So do not be surprised if the world does not appreciate who you are or what you stand for or what you say. That may come your way. They may murder you or maybe they don't murder you maybe they ignore you or maybe they slander you or maybe they ridicule you at work because you believe in or you would stand up for x y or z don't be surprised at that but then he says in verse 15 whosoever hates his brother is a murderer and no murderer has eternal life so he puts those two together all right so he he broadens the target a little bit and I don't know if you're guilty of murder, but you're probably guilty of hate at some point in time. Now, maybe you've never been there, and you have never had that, that burning passion in the negative sense of hate and vitriol, and you wanted to be malicious, and you wanted to hurt because you hated them. But odds are most of us probably have been there at some point in time. And it's not just John who puts hate and murder together. This is straight from the words of Jesus. Jesus tells us very clearly in Matthew chapter number 5. He says, You've heard of them of old time, that thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. All right, makes sense. Murder, judgment. But, verse 22, I say unto you, if you are angry with your brother without cause, that person shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. 
Now, that's, that's, those are strong words from Jesus. One of the strongest statements in his ethical teaching, where he says, do not think that you have obeyed the command to not murder if you just haven't murdered. He goes further than that and says, you are not allowed to be angry with someone unjustly. You are not allowed to slander them. That's what rakah means. You're not allowed to slander them. You are not allowed to denigrate them or hurt their quality of life and say, thou fool, in any way, shape, or form. The command to not murder was based off of the premise that mankind is valuable and made in God's image. So if you do anything to hurt that image, if you do anything to crumple the picture of God, if you do anything to hurt another human, then that is hateful and that is wrong and that is sinful and don't think that you have escaped the judgment there. Now, we're all guilty of this, aren't we? We're all guilty of, you know what? Frankly, I just can't stand them. And it comes out when someone mentions their name, especially if they mention their name in the positive. And I have to make sure that you know how much I hate them or how wrong they are and I have to be sure that you see them in the negative light exactly how I see them from my perspective and you begin to run them down or you begin to slander them or you begin to gossip about them you begin to hurt their quality of life which is hateful this is prevalent in junior high and senior high uh, young people especially uh, females the guys do it some but the females tend to be a bit more catty and gossiping and slandering and typing and I don't like you because you were captain of the cheer squad and that was that was my that was my gig you took it from me you know that you just buddied up to the coach for no reason at all whatever or they're the popular ones or we're not the we're the unpopular ones so we're against them this happens all the time adults are oftentimes no better and just going toe-to-toe with each other and locking horns with each other and Honestly, being malicious and hateful and vitriolic towards each other because they got the promotion or, hey, I liked them, but now they did something that, you know, I, I didn't like that. So I just turn into a relational buzzsaw and it is my goal in life to just chew through them and breathe fire at them and hurt them because why? They hurt me. This happens all the time. I read about a lady who uh, went to the doctor because she was fearful that she was sick and she had been bit by an animal that she thought was perhaps rabid. And the doctor did a test and confirmed that in fact this, this animal did have rabies and now this lady had rabies as well. And he told her like, I, I think we caught it in time, we're gonna deploy the medicine here, but this is going to affect you physically and, and it very well could affect you mentally as, as well and you need to know this. And immediately she pulled out a pen and a paper and she began you know, scribbling as fast as she could. And the doctor was a bit befuddled by this and looked at her and said, what are you writing? Like, is this, is this your will and testament or what are, you, what are you doing? She said, no, I'm writing down the list of the people I want to bite in case I forget and my brain goes crazy later on. <laughs> now, it's a joke. But let's be honest, some of us got those names pent up in us, don't we? Them, Right? And there's a little bit of hate. Even though we wouldn't normally classify it as that, we wouldn't be quick to say that you hated them, but it's there. That resentment is deep. What do you do with that? Is John saying hatred is murder? Murder, there's no eternal life. What about the church? 
There have been a lot of churches over the years and a lot of church people over the years that have done their best to stand for righteousness or for a cause or for right, which I commend, but have done so in a way that was hateful and was angry and was, I hope you burn, like that sort of stuff. That's hateful. That's not okay. That's not Christian. Murdering isn't Christian. Hating isn't Christian. He's going to go on to say that the love of God has been shown to us. If the love of God is in you, then that's oil and water with hatred. The love of God and hatred, they don't mix. So is he saying that none of these people, none of us, if we've ever hated, if we've ever murdered, that we can't be saved? And the short answer to that is no. But here's what he's saying. And if you remember last week, we saw this in verses 6 and 9 of chapter 3 where he made these really strong, unequivocal statements that Christians wouldn't sin, period. And we learned that what that meant is that a Christian won't sin and continue in sin. That Christians are not people that have these continual unbroken patterns of sin with no remorse and no regret and no conviction and no wanting to bring it forward and get it right and, and, and change. That, that, that's not Christian. And in the same way, what he's saying here is that if a person is willing to harbor habitual hate or they have no remorse at some murder that they've committed then that person's not a christian there's no remorse and they're just willing to hang on to that this is not to say that anyone who's ever committed a murder or ever uh, had an abortion or anyone who's ever hated somebody or anyone who's committed suicide that none of those people are, are going to heaven period it's not what it's saying but it is saying that christians are people who do not have murder and hatred in their, in their heart this doesn't remain in us how could it? The love of God would dispel it. It would push it out of us. But then he goes on to say, not just murder and hate, which may ring the bell for you, but these next ones tend to ring the bell a bit more for me. Level three of life is unfeeling. Here's what he says in verse 16. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, who are the brethren? Christians are commanded to love everybody, but the brethren are other Christians. Christians have a special command to love each other. Verse 17, Whoso has his world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Now to the first century mind, bowels, that was the seat of emotions. I know for us, bowels connotate a bit more of, of medical stuff. It doesn't really connotate seat of emotions. But in the Bible, you have to know bowels, seat of emotions, heart is your real thinker and discerner. We would say bowels, that's just medical, and heart is my seat of emotions. That's how we use the terms today. But it's different. And he says, if you shut up your bowels of compassion or your feeler or you stop feeling it, how does the love of God dwell in you? So what he's saying is, don't, don't say, I'm all good, you know? I don't murder people. I don't hate people. I just go my way. You do your thing. I'll do my thing. I stay out of your way. You stay out of my way. We'll give each other a wide berth, the end. If you do that and you're indifferent towards other Christians, that too, my friend, is not of God. To shut up your bowels of compassion. Christians are not people who treat others, especially other Christians, with flippancy or coldness or indifference. Christians are people who care for each other. We don't give each other the cold shoulder. 
We don't Kevin O'Leary shark tank, you're dead to me, our relationships with people. We are people who care for each other. I would go so far as to argue that in a Christian marriage, there should be something deep inside of you that your unsaved counterparts that are married do not have that would prevent you from giving the cold shoulder for too long or for you being just hostile and all this animosity pointed at each other, that that should not be the case, even more so for a Christian marriage than someone who's not a Christian. Why? Because the love of God is in me and the love of God is in them and I love you because you're my wife or my husband and I love you because I gave vows that I would stay committed and I would love you but I also love you because I know something of the love of God. There's a special advantage that we would have. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? It was all about this. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? Well, let me tell you a story. Right? There's this guy, he goes, he gets beat up. A lot of people pass by and they shut up their bowels of compassion. Even the religious people do that. Then all of a sudden the Samaritan guy comes by and the bowels of compassion are open and he shows mercy and he begins to help and he begins to bandage up the wounds and begins to give care and begins to give money and begins to help, right? And Jesus kind of classifies people into these three categories. The beater-uppers, right? Those that are murderous and, and, and hatred. The passer-uppers, those that are indifferent. And then the picker-uppers, the Samaritan, right? Whose name was Bounty after a while. They called him Bounty and they called him the quicker picker-upper and that became just what, what he was known as. Christians should be picker-uppers. My wife is shaking her head at me like, yes. There's dad jokes and pastor jokes and they're about on the same level. We pick each other up, we help each other, we care, right? We are not people who are cold and indifferent. But then he gives you another level. This is not indifferent. This is, I feel it, I feel it, but you still fall short, and that's unwilling. Verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, is he saying, don't say kind things to each other? Don't love in word and don't love in tongue. So don't encourage each other and don't give words of affirmation to each other and don't uh, praise each other and, and see the right in each other. That's not what he's saying. But he is acknowledging something that James acknowledged as well, that there would be those Christians who would say, I love you and I'm praying for you. And I, I, mean, I hope it goes well. And, and hey, is there anything I can do but would never have any action behind the words? And he's saying, do not be the person who feels it who sees it, who acknowledges it, but you're actually, when push comes to shove, unwilling to act. Love in deed. Do something about the needs that you see. He's speaking to apathy of action. Don't be apathetic in your actions. You go first. You act. I'll give to you. I'll help you. I will see the need and take the lead. I will step in. You say, well, I would have helped if someone asked me. Read the text. There's never a clause that says, if they ask you, then go help them. But if not, you're off the hook. It says you see, you see that they have need. You have the world's good. You can meet the need. You don't shut down your, your affection for them. You allow that to grow. And you don't love just in word, but you actually love in deed. You take the world's goods. You see the need. You go meet it. And his example of this was the Lord Jesus, right? Now you tell me. Did Jesus come to earth because we were all raising our hands saying, please save us? 
We have such a need. Our sin is such a problem. We need to be saved. You know, send us Jesus, please. No. That the example is that God saw us, God saw our need, even though we never came groveling to him and begging him to come die on a cross and pay for our sins, that he came willingly because he couldn't meet the need. He came, he met it, he showed, he demonstrated love, and in like kind, Christians are people who see, who go, who meet the need, even if I'm never asked. So you don't get a hall pass for, well, they never asked me to help. They never, they never told me that there was anything there. No, 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 no. Ball's in your court. It's your job, if you see it, to try your best to meet it. I was uh, looking yesterday, I asked our finance office to send me a list of our benevolence account. Uh, Our benevolence account is one of many we have at the church, and this provides for legitimate needs that people have in our community, yes, but most specifically within our church. 90 plus percent of our benevolence account is given to church members and we're open to requests from the outside but we we try to follow galatians and say we will do good to all men but especially those that are of the household of faith we love all men but we love each other in a really significant way and it just it put a smile on my face and it put joy in my heart to look down through this benevolence account first of all it was pages it was long There were little things and there were big things. And there was more than $30,000 that was exchanged from one church member to another church member this year that went through our church office. And I know that there's a whole lot of stuff that never went through the church office, but just happened, you know, people just giving money to each other or helping each other or, or blessing each other. But I know there was at least 30 grand that was through the church office. And I went down through there and began to log some of some of these things. And honestly, most of these things we don't share with you because it is a church member. It would be unfitting for us to say, hey, we gave Maggie some help with her groceries this week. That would be a little embarrassing. So most of these things we never make public and they completely happen behind the scenes. But as I went through this year, I found that we had covered on more than one occasion funeral expenses for people, moving expenses for people, medical bills for testing and for cancer treatments. We helped with car repairs, big and small, uh, rent and house repairs. We bought a used car for a single mother. Uh, We helped some international children, and we've talked about this, Fruz kids, get out of danger and into safety, and we provided flights and food and lodging a billion Walmart gift cards for grocery help. We sent other people on mission trips, and I could go on and on and on, of you guys loving each other. Some of that is broadly just like give to the missions fund and then kind of the church office takes care of it, but a lot of that was specific. I want this to go there, I want this to go there. So I'm gonna stop and say two thumbs up. Well done, good job, keep it up. That's what this text is talking about that you see a need in another Christian and you have a heart to meet that need and as best you can, you step up to the plate and you say, I will help. Now, if you're sitting here and you're like, I don't have any involvement in any of that whatsoever, you know? I don't give to the mission fund. I never saw a need. I never helped somebody out. Okay, start. Perhaps it's just that you're so uninvolved that you don't see the needs. That's a, that's a potential You may be sitting here and thinking, I don't know of any needs. That would be a good cue that maybe 
There should be a higher level of involvement. Maybe jump into a group and get to know some people. Maybe there's that person that sits at the end of your row every Sunday. Let's go out to lunch and, and let's get to know each other better. Maybe it's a fellowship that we have. We have several in-home fellowships today that are available for you. And you go and you meet some people. But I promise you, if you spend any amount of time or effort actually trying to rub shoulders with other church members and get to know them, before too long, you'll pick up on there are needs. There are people that are hurting. There are people that have legitimate things that you could help with. Maybe it's in a financial way. Maybe it's in a way that I just write a note to you. Maybe it's, I don't have money, but I can babysit for free while you go do the medical testing. There's a million ways to apply it. So, th so those of you that are involved, thank you. Those of you that this is not maybe a regular pattern, get your head up a little bit. Open your eyes up a little bit. There's lots of needs that you can find amongst other Christians and amongst this church family of ways to help. Don't be unwilling. The fifth level and where we should be is that of loving. This is what he says in verse number 11, and I, I love that he starts with this. This is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. All right, so get this. Not a new commandment. He's not springing new knowledge on them. John is not a cult leader with special knowledge, and he's come up with this new thing that no one's ever heard of, right? This isn't John's custom-made key to Christianity that he will make available to them uh, with no mon money down for a limited time. Like, this is not the revised version. This is not a new commandment. This was in the Hebrew Scriptures that we love each other. This was modeled and taught by Jesus. This was modeled and taught by the apostles. This should be something they already knew. Love each other. Bless each other. Help each other. Open your hand. Be generous to each other. Verse 14. We know that we pass from death unto life if we love the brethren. A lot more to come on that next week. Verses 16 and 17. We perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. I really know that God loves me because he acted. He did something. And in, and in our turn, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So there's this golden rule of operating where you love someone the way that you would want to be loved or you treat someone the way that you would want to be treated, right? Then there are our normal rules of operating, which are I will treat you as my mood dictates, right? That's a normal one for most people. Um, I will treat you well in order to get something in return, those sorts of things. But then there's the disciples rule, and that is I will treat you the way Jesus treated me. And if Jesus loved me and Jesus gave himself for me and Jesus sacrificed for me willingly, then I will treat you in the, in the same way. Love was the badge that Jesus wore, and love is supposed to be the badge that Christians wear that we love each other. We are not Muslims who make it our goal to spread the word by conquest and wielding a sword. We are Christians who love each other and believe that all men will know that we're his disciples by the love that we have one toward another. That the world will see not our gleaming blades and be in terror, but the world will see our infectious love and will start to think, I want some of that. Man, that's attractive and that's appealing. And I want, to, I, I want to know something of that. 
And that should be the church. The church should be this little incubator of love where people that come in or see from the outside think, man, I don't know a lot about these people. I don't know if my doctrine lines up. I don't know that I agree with everything that Pastor Mark guy says or not. But they love each other, and that's super attractive. That should be the church. That should be manifest for people. I'd go so far as to say this. If you're a member of Harvest Baptist Church, your number one job is love God. But your number two job and your principal duty as a member to the other members of the church is to love them. It's to help them. It's to give yourself for them. And there are so many ways to do this. If you open your eyes just a little bit, you'll find that you can, you can turn just about anything you do through church uh, into love if you have the right perspective. That when you give, you can give out of love. When you serve, you can serve out of love, not just because it's dutiful or because you're supposed to or somebody told you that you better. Let me see if I can uh, give you an example of this. I see Jamie. Is Joe in here, Jamie? He's not here. Okay, Pastor Joe. Pastor Joe is our uh, pastor of, of care. So if you're in the hospital, odds are you'll see Pastor Joe. Uh, if you are going through a tough time physically, you will hear the most from, as far as texts and calls and that sort of stuff, from Pastor Joe. But is it Pastor Joe's job alone to love the other members of the church who are going through a tough time physically or having a surgery or are shut in and can't make it to church? Is it his job to go love all those people? We, we delegate to you. You go. Now I'm scot-free. I don't have to do anything. Absolutely not. I'm thankful for Pastor Joe. He does an amazing job. But it's not his job alone to go care for people. We love each other. We love the brethren. And if I'm aware because you're in my group or you're on my ministry team or we sit close to each other or I see on Facebook or on the, on the church prayer wall that you're going through a tough time, man, maybe I write a note. Maybe I call and say, is there something I can do? Is there some way I can help? Maybe I encourage and pray with you and for you. Maybe I step up and meet a physical, tangible need. That's fitting for all of the members of the church to do to each other. Young to old, those that are newlyweds to those that are just, you know, losing a parent. Anywhere in between for us to love each other and help each other. I was on the, on the receiving end of this just here a couple weeks ago when my dad had a stroke and, and we get, our life kind of gets thrown into a tailspin and I'm buzzing down to Kentucky to be there with the family and the schedule's all, you know, mismatched and, and all over the place. And so many of you reached out and said, we love you, we're praying for you, but then you included with that, is there anything we can do? Can we provide a meal? Can we mow your lawn? Can we do anything? And there honestly weren't a lot of needs that we had. I didn't need my trash cans moved out of the garage to the street so that the trash guy could pick them up in the middle of the week and then my house wouldn't smell like foul garbage when I got home and I was very thankful that someone went and did that for me. It was practical and simple, but it was helpful to me. But there are so many of you that reached out, but do that for each other. Do that for each other. We have a nursery team here at the church. And there's, I don't know, 90 to 100 ladies that serve on the nursery team. If you're out of curiosity, you're on the nursery team, raise your hand. Let's see, nursery team. Let's give a round of applause to all these nursery team members. You guys are awesome, okay? For real, because most of you have like kids that are young anyway, and then you go be with more young kids, and I know that it can, it can, uh, can be a lot to handle. But think about this. All of you who serve on the nursery team or those of you that are interested in it, why? 
well, I don't know, they just need somebody to show up and I guess I'll just do my job because I'm supposed to serve. Well, there's a way better perspective than that. Love. You realize as you serve, you can love like 800 people at the same time. You can love that kid by sharing the good news of Jesus with them and teaching that little two-year-old, God made you and God loved you and Jesus died for you. You're loving that mom who's able to put that handful into the nursery so that she can come worship and, and hear the scriptures in an unencumbered way. You're loving those other nursery workers because if, if all the nursery workers said, nah, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, now there's 50 people and they have to serve double shifts and, and they're not able to be in church as much and, and you're loving the other workers, you're loving Janelle, the scheduler of the nursery workers because the more she has, the easier it is to fill the holes and when those people are sick, uh, to, to put someone in and now there's less time that's spent at home at night trying to figure out the schedule and trying to arrange things and you're actually loving her and there's not as much time that's taken away from her husband or her own children because she does that on a volunteer basis, that when you choose to serve and just that one example, you're loving all kinds of people. If you'll see it that way, if you'll choose to want to do it that way, there's a thousand ways to love. And here's what John says. Christians, Christians are people, they don't murder. They don't harbor hate. They're not indifferent to other people's needs, especially Christians' needs. They're not unwilling to meet those needs. Christians are people who are willing to step up. Paul would say it this way, and I'm done. He said in Galatians 6, as we have therefore opportunity... And honestly, sometimes you don't have opportunity. You can't meet every need. You do have to pay your rent sometimes, and there may not be enough money to step in and to do that. I, I get it. But as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, but especially unto them that are of the household of faith. You know what he's saying? Let's love everybody. Let's be open-handed with everybody, but especially with each other. Man, let's love each other. I don't know who's on your love list right now, but if you don't have somebody, find someone. Love them in a practical way. I don't know if you'll ever be famous, if your name will be in lights and if you'll be a household name. Odds are probably not. But you can be famous in your own family for loving. You can be famous in this church family for loving. It's a good goal. Even if 1% of the population doesn't know who I am, man, there are some people that can know me here and may they say of me. Describe that guy, man, he loves. Describe her, she loves. May that be our heart, may that be our goal to love each other as Christ has loved us. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for first and foremost loving us and not just loving us in word and putting you know, in the Bible, I love you but for loving us indeed, that you would take on flesh, that you would pay for our sins, that you would die on a cross, and that you would manifest your love. Thank you for not just making love this example that we look at, but for making it experiential for all of those who, who know you as Savior Jesus, that you have poured your love into our hearts. And I pray that we would pour some of that love back out to those that are around us. May we be a church family that continues to love 
And may we not rest on our laurels and say that, well, we're doing a pretty good job, but may we understand that we could do better, we could improve, we could love more, and may that be our aim. This morning, I want you just to remain in a spirit of prayer, and I want you, if you're a Christian, to talk to the Lord. Tell him that you love him. Thank him for loving you. If there's coldness, apathy, indifference, hatred in your heart, confess it, lay it down. Say, God, this does not belong. This is not fitting for me. This isn't what a Christian would be. I I don't want to be this. Change me. But if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, I could put it this way. He loves you. He gave his life for you. And if you're willing to respond to that love and accept him and receive him, to believe on him, he says it'll take you. He will save you. That means he'll save you from your sins. He will forgive those sins. He will clean you up. He'll put a new nature in you. He'll give you eternal life, a home in heaven. All it requires is for you to believe on him. And if you have never done that, then I hope that right now in this specific moment that you would, that you would call out to him, that you would put your faith in him. And if you would like to do that, maybe pray these words. Say, Jesus, I am responding to your love today. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe that you did that, and I put my faith in you. Jesus, I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in my works. I'm trusting in you and only you. Save me, forgive me, and give me eternal life. Now, friend, those are not magic words. That's not a script. But if you will genuinely put your faith and trust in him, he guarantees you that he will save you from your sin. Lord, with hearts of praise, we come one more time. We've done our best to sing today. We've done our best to study today. And I pray that we would open our minds to learn. That's a very Christian thing for us to do. But Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts to love. That we would love other people in real, practical, tangible ways. That we would demonstrate it. That we would prove it. Lord, help us to prove it with those that are close to us. May we not say that we love our children and then be angry and hateful and short-tempered with them. May we not say that we love our, our spouse and then treat them as though they're dirt. May we not say that we love our church family, but refuse to see their needs or refuse to sacrifice of ourselves to give to them. And may we not say that we love the world and we're unwilling to share the message of Jesus or we're unwilling to prove it. Lord, work in us, help us, change us, produce more of this in us. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, church family, I want to thank you for coming this morning. We're going to watch an announcement video. This talks about a few things, including our fellowships we have happening this afternoon. If you're not signed up for one of those, or maybe you're brand new and you didn't know about them, we'd love, we'd love to hang out with you, and you're more than welcome to jump into one of them. 
Uh, but take a minute, watch this video, and as soon as it's done, you can be dismissed. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning and to be able to rub shoulders with encouraging believers and to hear the truth that will help us and change us and grow us for the week ahead. We are excited to be here and we hope you are too. If this is your first or second time with us, welcome. One of our pastors would love to meet you at our welcome desk after the service and put a small gift in your hands. Now let's take a minute to see what's happening next here at Harvest. This summer, we are looking for volunteers to be part of an evangelism team. Consider joining us on Thursday, August 18th from 5 to 8 as we hand out gospel material at Saxonburg's Mingle on Main. We're also taking a team to the PNC Park on Friday, August 19th from 6 to 7.30 to hand out gospel tracts to those going into the game. If you're interested or you'd like more information, please stop by the welcome desk. This past week, a group from our church returned from a missions trip in the Dominican Republic. While they were there, they were able to share the gospel with hundreds of kids and even hand out basketballs to children who had never owned one before. On their way back, they got stuck in the airport and so one of them pulled out a guitar and started singing and at that point, the whole terminal started singing with them. And not only that, multiple people got saved as a result. With that in mind, we will hold an interest meeting today following the 1030 service in room 400 regarding our fall mission strip opportunity. A team from Harvest will partner with Pastor Dave Barnhouse in Vision Zambia from November 7th through 16th. There's much work to do on this trip. New construction, installing solar panels, distributing food and other supplies to remote villages, and much more. If you're interested in serving the Lord in Zambia, please attend that interest meeting. Here at Harvest, it's our desire to make mature followers of Jesus, and that's one of the reasons that we love groups. Groups provide a place for you to grow, to be encouraged and to dive deeper into scripture and to take the next steps in your faith. If you'd like to register for a group or get more information, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash groups or stop by the groups table in the lobby after the service next Sunday. Our team will be ready to help you sign up or answer any questions that you might have. What happens when you really want to get to know more of the friendly faces you see at Harvest, but life has just been busy? Well, our fellowship Sunday that's happening today is your chance. We invite you to break things up a bit and get to know more of the church family by attending one of these hangout options. We've got softball, volleyball, and in-home hangouts. Each will be running from two to four this afternoon. Jump in on the fun and use this opportunity to get to know more of the church this afternoon. It's not too late to join. Visit the church website to sign up. It's hard to believe that the new school year is right around the corner. The kids will also make some changes here at church too. Next Sunday, August 21st is Promotion Sunday when kids get to move into their new classes and even make some new friends. Awana will be kicking off on August 24th as well. We're ready for a new year and new adventures. 
Thanks for spending some time with us today. Remember to follow us on social media so you can stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.